The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. Good day, America. Welcome, Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people, all the boat rockers in the house, and anybody else I may have missed, to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio, where we use the Bible and the Constitution, not to see who's on the right or left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, and for Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns about. I hold to the book, the Bible, as the authoritative word of God. Glad that you guys have joined us this morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so. SonsOfLibertyRadio.com and also SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. In fact, if you're listening by way of the radio and you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right, you can see the face that's made for radio, head over to SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, and there you're going to see two videos at the top of the page. The one on the left side of the page is Bradley's show from yesterday, so if you missed that and you'd like to catch it, you can do so up until 3 p.m. Eastern today, at which time he'll be live in that area right there. On the right side of the page is where we're at. Click on the play button, blow it up on whatever device you got. Look for the rumble icon, bottom right-hand corner. Click on that. Join us in the chat on Rumble. We've got a lot of friends over there this morning. Good morning. Good to see you guys. And while you're over there, please subscribe to the channel, Sons of Liberty Radio Live, Sons of Liberty Radio Live on Rumble. And then we are also on, <clears throat> excuse me, we're also on uh, BeforeIt'sNews.com, top of the page there, too. And uh, so we appreciate Michael and his team giving us a spot. Uh, on their platform uh, very much. So thank you very much, guys. Uh, right up over to sonslibertymedia.com, right up under where we're streaming live, top right side of the page, uh, you can sign up for our email newsletter. Again, that goes out once a day, late afternoon, early evening. And I am part of, I, I got to tell you, part of, um, the, the, you know, dealing with my sickness was the use of my time and how it gets jumbled up and it's just, you know, just taking so long to do things. And I've been able to do, you know, accomplish more quickly by being a little more focused in some areas. So uh, some of those are going out earlier and earlier uh, in the day. But uh, yeah, they'll they'll get to you late afternoon, early evening in your inbox. Please be sure to do that. That includes the morning show archive, as you can see. This is the one we did yesterday, uh, which will coincide with what we're going to talk about today. Because yesterday we talked about men, and I'm probably going to have to do a show on women. So we balance this out too. God send us godly, godly women, right? Uh, I saw some of the comments yesterday in the video section, and uh, and you know somebody was talking about God send us non-feminist women. Amen. Yay. Amen. Yeah, women who know who they are in Christ, who they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to be doing. Um, <clears throat> that's just as vital as the man. It really is. Um, 
So the, yesterday's message is going to tie in with today. <clears throat> I don't know what I just got in my throat, but uh, uh, I've got something warm to drink here. And so when I was right before the show started, it kind of took my breath for a minute. And uh, yeah, so I'm probably going to have to have some more of that too. Ah, yes, that is wonderful. Okay. All right. With that said, I want to start out today <clears throat> with something that I couldn't start out with in militia. Now, uh, in Michigan, not militia. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, this is going to be a fun day today. That's for sure. All right. I want to start out with something that I couldn't start out with in Michigan. In large measure, uh, I didn't take a laptop because I didn't know there was going to be a projector, or I could have done it. Um, <clears throat> and it would have extended my talk by, I don't know, 11 minutes. But what I want to do is I want to bring this in. I think I gave you guys a little taste of Norm Olson. You guys up in Michigan, you'll be readily aware who this guy is. Um, he is from Michigan. Uh, he was the leader of the Michigan militia there. And after the Oklahoma City bombing hoax... Uh, that went on. And yes, it was a hoax. It, this was not Timothy McVeigh. That's what I'm talking about when I'm saying it's a hoax. I'm not saying people didn't get killed. I'm not saying there wasn't a bomb that went off. I'm not saying there wasn't damage. What I'm saying is, is Timothy McVeigh and all those guys, they were patsies for what was really going on. They really were. Any serious look at what took place will tell you that our own government was behind it. Yep. It was an inside job too. And after that, the Congress decided they wanted to pit themselves against the people in the Constitution, and so they started um, bad-mouthing the militia, something that's enshrined in the Constitution itself. In fact, listen carefully. Before you go calling the guys in blue or even the guys in brown, the law enforcers, go look at your Constitution. Tell me, who is the law enforcer in the U.S. Constitution? Who is it? Well, the president is to ensure that the laws are faithfully executed, so he's a part of that. He's in that executive branch. But who are the ones to enforce the law? It is the militia. And who is the militia? It's not a federalized militia like the Guard or the Reserve or any of this stuff. Although they've made them that, they call them the organized militia. But it's the unorganized militia. They're the ones to enforce the law of our union. We're the ones, men, who are to put down insurrections. Men, we are to be the ones who repel invasions. Those of us who have liberty. Those of us who are considered we the people of the Constitution. We're to be the law enforcers. And I'm going to show you that in just a minute. But what I want to do is I just want to open up the show today. It's going to run about 10 minutes or so that we play this. So it is going to cut into my time a little bit, but I, you know, if I got to go over a little bit, we'll go over a little bit. Um, <clears throat> but other than this, the information I'll give you is what I shared with the people of Michigan. There's two videos that I'm going to play here. This is the end of one of them, and this is where Norm uh, speaks to the, uh, I believe this is the Senate, the U.S. Senate. And, um, of course, Arlen Specter is the guy who's in his sights in the previous little clip that I played. I might play that after I play his introduction, but I just kind of want you to hear what Norm says. Now, I'll have all these videos of the entire uh, 
um, Senate Terrorism Subcommittee uh, deal here. I'll have them in the archive this morning. I put them in there before when we talked about uh, Michigan the other week, but I didn't play any of them because I couldn't find them at the time because Rumble in its uh, goofiness was not allowing me to even search my own videos. But this is Norm Olson. This is, gosh, this is back in the 90s um, that this took place. And um, so I want you to hear what he has to say. Now, this this one's going to take about a minute and a half. Once it's finished, I'll flip over to the other video that finishes what he's talking about. So check it out. Thank you for the opportunity to tell. Whoops. Sorry about that. Following statement will attempt to answer the question of the legitimacy and the need of the citizen militia. Not only does the Constitution specifically allow the formation of a federal army, it also recognizes the inherent right of the people to form militia. Further, it recognizes that the citizen and his personal armament are the foundation of the militia. The arming of the militia is not left to the state, but to the citizen. However, should the state choose to arm its citizen militia, it is free to do so. Bearing in mind that the Constitution is not a document limiting the citizen, but rather limiting the power of government. But should the state fail to arm its citizen militia, the right of the people to keep and bear arms becomes the source of the guarantee that the state will not be found defenseless in the presence of a threat to its security. It makes no sense whatsoever to look to the Constitution of the United States or that of any state for permission to form a citizen militia, since logically the power to permit is also the, law, the power to deny. If brought to its logical conclusion in this case, government may deny the citizen the right to form a militia. If this were to happen, the state would assert itself as the principle of the contract, making the people the agents. Liberty then would depend on the state's grant of liberty. Such a concept is foreign to American thought. While the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution recognizes the existence of the state militia and recognizes their necessity for securing a free state, and while it also recognizes that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, the Second Amendment is not the source of the right to form a militia nor to keep and bear arms. Okay, all right, so you see what he's saying. He's basically saying if you guys are going to sit here and you're going to badmouth the militia, and you're going to restrict the rights of the people to form militias in order to do what the Constitution says, this is a problem. It's just as much of a problem as the censorship that goes on in the media, the social media, and all the other. It's just as much of a problem. And so Norm is calling this out. He's going back to the fact that our rights don't come from the Constitution and they don't come from government. And if they do, this is, this is the, if that's what you want to do, if you want to play a Chris Cuomo, and you want to say, our rights don't come from God, they come from government. If that's what you want to do, if that's the way you want to think, then you have no rights. Because government can deny your rights at every given turn. Okay? All right, here's the rest of it. Here's picks up where, uh, where he was just talking. Keep and bear arms. Those rights existed in the states prior to the formation of the Federal Union. In fact, the right to form militia and to keep and bear arms existed, exists from in antiquity. The enumeration of those rights in the Constitution only underscores their natural occurrence and importance. According to the Tenth Amendment, ultimate power over the militia is not delegated to the federal government by the Constable. Consequently, the power of the militia remains in the hands of the people. Again, the fundamental fu function of the militia in society remains with the people. 
Therefore, the Second Amendment recognizes that the militia's existence and the security of the state rests ultimately in the people who, f who volunteer their persons to constitute the militia and their arms to supply its firepower. The primary defense of the state rests with the citizen militia bearing its own arms. Fundamentally, it is not the state that defends the people, but the people who defend the state. The second line of defense of the state consists of a statutory organization known as the National Guard. Whereas the National Guard is solely the creation of statutory law, the militia derives its existence from the inherent inalienable rights which existed before the Constitution and whose importance are such that they merit specific recognition in that document. While the National Guard came into existence as the result of legislative activity, the militia existed before there was a nation or a constitutional form of government. The militia consisting of people owning and bearing personal weapons is the very authority out of which the United States Constitution grew. This point must be emphasized. Neither the citizens militia nor the citizens private arsenal can be appropriate can be an appropriate subject of federal regulation. It was the armed militia of the United uh, the American colonies whose own efforts ultimately led to the establishment of the United States of America. While some may say that the right to keep and bear arms is granted in uh, to Americans by the Constitution, just the opposite is true. The federal government itself is the child of the armed citizen. We, Come the on. people, are the parent of the child we call government. You, senators, are part of the child that we, the people, gave life to. The increasing amount of federal encroachment into our lives indicates the need for parental correction, corrective action. In short, the federal government needs a good spanking to make it behave. On other important, Amen. One other important point needs to be made. Since the Constitution is the limiting document upon the government, the government cannot become greater than the granting power. It is the servant, it is, uh, that is, the servant cannot become greater than its master. Therefore, should the chief executive or other branch of government or all branches together act, act to suspend the Constitution under a rule of martial law, all power granted to government would be canceled and deferred back to the granting power that is the people and I'll conclude with this statement martial law shall not be possible in this country as long as the people recognize the Bill of Rights as inalienable my statement is not complete however it has been made part of the record for those who would like to review it thank you very much <clears throat> thank you okay all right so I'm gonna stop it right there um, all of these this is like a 10-part c-span thing um, and I got, I grabbed all 10 parts, uh, sometime back, I don't know, a couple of years ago and uploaded them to my rumble channel. And I wanted to make sure that people could access this because again, this is, this was Norm here is talking in the nineties. We're talking probably almost 30 years ago. People don't talk like this anymore. And this is the problem. Men. I spoke to us yesterday. We have to start talking about this. Oh, Tim, I don't, I don't want to mention the, the M word because then you get a target painted on the back. Listen, friend, you've already got targets painted on your back. Quit worrying about if they're going to put another one on there. You already have them on there. Go read the article by Mark, Michael Snyder from some years ago. 72 different types of potential domestic terrorists in the United States defined by the Army, the Department of Defense, and the rest. And you'll find yourself among a plethora of those, those listings that are there. Quit worrying about the target on your back. This is the reason I brought Bambus on, uh, Mike Bambus on. 
Take care of the stuff you've got to take care of so there's some peace of mind about how your family's taking care of it. Go ahead and do those things. They're still available, settingbrushfires.com. You can go there, put in Mike Bambas, B-A-M-B-A-S. Put that in there or American National. You can find it. All the documents are there so you can put your stuff in trust. You don't have to worry about your family being without and they can't come after that and all the other things. Put that in there and then start being a part of the solution rather than part of, you know, just like everybody else, complaining and thinking the only thing you're going to do is vote and solve this issue that we have. Voting is not going to solve it. And, for, and you know, newsflash for all you Trump supporters out there, aren't you the one saying that there's election fraud all and this is why your guy didn't win? Which I believe, don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not bad-mouthing you, but aren't you the one saying that? And yet you can't wait till 2024 so you can cast another vote that's just going to be undermined. Where's the disconnect here, guys? The power really rests with the people. This is why, look, I have, I have promoted David Zuniga. I have promoted Tactical Civics. Why? Uh, they lay out a plan that if you want to see restoration, there's the plan. You can see it. And if you don't agree with everything in it, fine. Learn the information and put it to use in your county. You make it your own and put it to use in your county. Grand juries and militias, those are the two powers the people should have and should exercise their rights to in their county. You want to clean it up? You want justice? You really want that? You're tired of being angry at hearing all the stories and throwing things at the TV or the radio or the newspaper or whatever the case may be? You're the solution. You are. Not Donald Trump, not the Republican Party, not the, certainly not the Democrat Party. You are the solution. As you obey God. As you obey God. Um, don't know what happened with the clarity of my camera. I'll lay hands on you peoples out there. All right. There we go. All right. So here's what I want to share with you. Here's a little history regarding the Second Amendment. Now, just for those who are here who only know that, well, I got a right to keep and bear arms. That ain't to be infringed. It starts out before that. And again, if you're supporting a Second Amendment group that does not talk about the militia, you might want to think about where your support needs to go. And I don't know of a single Second Amendment group that talks about the militia. I mean, it's right in the Second Amendment, too. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The only focus on the last part, and, and the last part is important, don't get me wrong, it's absolutely important, it's pretty clear, shall not be infringed. And what Norma's saying is any type of regulation on the people to keep and bear arms is wrong. Now, it's clear that it says a well-regulated militia, and the Constitution does talk about the discipline of the militia, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15 and 16, that is the duty of Congress, they need to be well-trained. They need to work, learn how to work together. This is very important, guys. This is not going to happen in a moment's notice. You need to be doing it now. And if you listen to what Norm has to say in the, the Senate hearing here as you go down through it, and I highly recommend, I, I really do, play these and just listen to that history. Listen to that wisdom that comes 
from the knowledge of experience and of history and of understanding your rights that this guy gives. And there's some other people who testify in this as well. So how do we get the Second Amendment? Well, we'll we'll just kind of push back a little bit. The current one was adopted in 1791 as part of the Bill of Rights. Uh, And again, Article 1, Section 8, it talks about this organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia. James Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers, January 29th, 1788, this is what he said. Besides the advantage of being armed with the Americans, which the Americans possess over the people of almost every other nation, the existence of subordinate governments to which the people are attached and by which the militia officers are appointed forms a barrier against the enterprises of ambition, more insurmountable than any which a simple government of any form can admit of. Hmm. It's been referred to in the modern times as an individual's right to carry and use arms for self-defense. The self-amendment, or the Second Amendment, was envisioned by the framers of the Constitution, according to the College of William Mary Professor, excuse me, law professor, and future U.S. District Court Judge St. George Tucker in 1803, in his great work, Blackstone's Commentaries, with notes of reference to the Constitution and laws of the federal government of the United States and the Commonwealth of Virginia, as the true palladium of liberty. That's his words. True palladium of liberty. In addition to checking federal power, the Second Amendment also provided state governments with what Luther Martin... Yeah, I got his name right. Not Martin Luther. Luther Martin. He lived uh, from uh, 1744 to 1826. He described as the last coup de grace that enabled the states to thwart the and oppose the general government. This is what these guys before us said. This is not what right-wingers or, you know, whatever the name is they're giving people. And I'm not a right-winger. I'm a law guy. I'm not on the right side of the law. I'm not on the left side of the law. I'm on the law. That's what I point to. That's what Bradley points to. Nevertheless, it says this is the last coup de grace to thwart and oppose the general government. Hmm. Last in stride, the ancient Florentine and Roman constitutional principle of civil and military virtue by making every citizen a soldier and every soldier a citizen. Now, again, this is not mandatory. I want people to understand that. In a free society, and we're going to look at some of this from Scripture in a minute, in a free society, men are not compelled by force to be involved in an army or a militia. That's not what they're compelled by. In fact, the draft itself, listen to me carefully. I know a lot of people want to go off on all these draft dodgers and stuff. Listen, the draft is unconstitutional on its face. It flies in the face of liberty that the state can come in and say, your life is not your own anymore, it's ours, and you're going to do our bidding, and you're going to go fight our war. I'm going to tell you, some of you dads should have stood up for your boys during Vietnam and said, nope, you're not sending them. I'm going to tell you. You should have stood up and said, no, we're not sending them. 
It was a politician's war, nothing more. That's what it was. And all of the guys, and I can say that because I've talked to many guys who are in Vietnam. Some of them did not want to tell me about their experiences. Some of them did. And I listened. And all those men had one thing in common. They did not believe they were fighting for the United States. They believed they were fighting for each other to get each other back home. That's consistently what I heard. And when I asked them, when I asked them, how can we help our troops today? Without exception, I didn't hear anybody say anything different. They said, quit sending them to these foreign wars. Quit sending them to the foreign wars. You don't know what you're doing to them. You don't know what you're doing to their minds. You don't know what they're doing to their families. You don't know what you're doing, they're doing to their bodies. But when you get home... And you have to fight on the home front against the tyrants in our backyard. Forget Israel, forget China, forget Russia. We got them here in our backyard. From California to Texas to New York to Florida, we got them all over the place. Republicans and Democrats alike. And they're definitely in D.C. And this is what the militia is to guard against. The lawlessness of these people. This is what they're to do. From Constitution, um, from Congress.gov, excuse me, Constitution.Congress.gov, here's what we learn. Historical surveys of the Second Amendment often trace its roots, at least in part, through the English Bill of Rights of 1689. All starts to start making sense, doesn't it? Remember when we had Anna on, the lawyer from over in England, and she was talking about the oath of the queen to uphold God's laws. We talk, they have a constitution there that's very similar to ours uh, in upholding the law of God. Yeah. Our Second Amendment stems from the roots of the 1689 English Bill of Rights, which declared that subjects, which are Protestants, may have arms for their defense suitable to their condition and as allowed by law. That provision grew out of friction over the English crown's efforts to use loyal militias to control and disarm dissidents. Hmm, Hurricane Katrina, anybody? I, I pity, listen, I pity the federal militia that comes down my neighborhood wanting to confiscate guns. I pity them. I really do. For whatever reason. It was to disarm dissonance and enhance the crown's standing army, among other things, prior to the glorious revolution that supplanted King James II in favor of William and Mary. The early American experience with militias and military authority would inform what would become the Second Amendment as well. In the founding era of America, citizen militias drawn from the local community existed to provide for the common defense and standing armies of professional soldiers were viewed by some with suspicion. The Declaration of Independence listed a grievances as against King George III that he had affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power and had kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures following the Revolutionary War. Hmm. 
It's interesting. Um, a lot of stuff here. One of the first things that they did was they did have a uh, religious scruples uh, in which men who had a conscience that wouldn't allow them to go and bear arms, they didn't feel right about killing people, allowed them to have that. Well, that's their right anyway. We don't need, we don't need words for that. <laughs> that's the right of men anyway. If your conscience is weak towards that, then we are to love you as the weaker brother, as Paul says, when he talks about wine or when he talks about meat or when he talks about observing a certain day or whatever the case may be. The person who is offended by all that stuff is considered the weaker brother, and we're to love them. We're not to force something on them. We do need to teach them. We need to strengthen them and mature them. Don't get me wrong. But we're not to press on their conscience something that our conscience is not uh, condemning us for, okay? And so there were guys who recognized that. And so there was this formula that was put forward for this amendment. The Committee of the House of Representatives that considered Madison's formulation altered the order of the clauses such that the militia clause now came first with a new specification of militia as composed of the body of the people and made several other wording and punctuation changes. Debate in the House largely centered on the proposed amendment's religious objector clause, which Elbridge Jerry, arguing that the clause would give the people in the power the ability to declare who are those religiously scrupulous and prevent them from bearing arms. Well, we don't want that. We want the people to determine whether they're going to bear the arms or not. It's their conscience, not the arm, not the conscience of those in government. So we, we come down, and uh, this is what we get. August the 24th, 1789, the version of the Second Amendment sent to the Senate remains similar to the version initially drafted by Madison. And here's what it read. A well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people being the best security of a free state, though, and I like necessary rather than the best security. No, it's necessary. And you see what's happened because we don't have it. We're not a free state anymore. The, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, but no one religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall be compelled to render military service in person. Now, if you don't if you don't understand the religious scrupulous deal, um, highly recommend, and then you can go back and read on the real story itself. Because look, films just don't do justice to the reality. They they never do. Now, I highly recommend people read read the real Braveheart from a historian rather than watch the film. But there's a film called Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, about a young man, I think it was World War One, maybe World War Two. I think it was World War One. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. But anyway, he had he was he, he his conscience bothered him. He didn't want to be a soldier. He wanted to be a medic. He wanted to save lives. That was his thought. All the guys made fun of him, and yet this guy worked his tail off through the night, saving his fellow soldiers who had been wounded, uh, just giving his last full measure of devotion to those men to care for them because his conscience wouldn't allow him to pick up a gun. And you know what? I do believe God was with the guy. I do. 
There was some quirky stuff, you know, theologically and all, but that guy had a love for his neighbor. He had a love for his neighbor. And, uh, and, and he was used greatly in that time, and he won the respect of his fellow soldiers after that, too. This amendment that I just read to you, though, it would take that would, excuse me, would take what would become its final form in the Senate, where the religious objector clause was finally removed and several other phrases were modified into what we have now, which is pretty simple. Very simple. Many in the founding generation believe that the governments are prone to use soldiers to oppress the people. Yeah, that's exactly right. Oh, they're using the agents of the state right now. Wait till they dress up their foreigners in, uh, in U.S. fatigues and, uh, and uniforms. They're already doing it with the police. They're already making those who've broken the law into quote-unquote law enforcers. <laughs> you better wake up, fellas. We're about 10 minutes from contact is what's going on. In case you haven't noticed, that's what we're at. These militias need to be formed quickly in the community that you're in, and it is your duty, fellas, to do it. It's your duty to do it. What are we going to do? How are we going to organize? Get some men in your area that are like-minded. Start informing one another. But if you listen to Norm uh, in this Senate hearing, one of the things he talks about is the militia is more than just pew-pew, you know, America weekend warrior guy. It's about intelligence. It's about sharing information. It's about being up to speed on what's going on. Who is it? Who is running the show in your community? Being aware of what they're doing. Collecting evidence. Just like a police would, or just like a policeman would, a detective who's investigating a case. This is what the militia is to do. They should come along one side one another and disciple one another too. That's what I see. I see the militia as the church. I really do. And at the forefront should be our king, right? King Jesus, not King Tim or Bradley or Norm Olson or anybody else. It should be King Jesus. He should be the one leading the armies. English history suggested that this risk could be controlled. This is the, the standing army deal. By permitting the government to raise armies consisting of full-time paid troops only when needed to fight foreign adversaries. For other purposes, such as responding to sudden invasions or other emergencies, the government could rely on a militia that consisted of ordinary citizens who supplied their own weapons and received some part-time unpaid military training. Listen, the pay for the American militiamen is the preservation of their liberty and of their property. That's your pay. I'm, I'm serious when I say this. I shake my head at those in Texas, those Texas men. Guys, if you're out there, listen to me. Why are you allowing the invasion and waiting on a guy who keeps hoodooing you? And I'm talking about Greg Abbott and the rest of them. They keep hoodooing you with their your mama jokes towards Joe Biden. That's in essence what they're doing. They mock him. They point the finger at him while they're doing the same thing he's doing. They're bringing the illegals across the border. They're not stopping them at the border. They're bringing them across. They're putting them through the process. They're flying them all out over the country. 
but yet Greg Abbott and um, and his guys are the good guys. I just want to know what's the difference between him and Biden. They're both bringing illegals in. They're both distributing them throughout the United States. They're both overseeing it. Oh, one talks about it. Uh, remember what we saw in James? See and say. Oh, they talk about it. It's really bad. Oh, we shouldn't have this. Joe Biden's to blame for it. The Biden administration, blah, 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 blah. And then when you watch them, what are they doing? They're aiding and abetting them, bringing them in, sending them throughout the United States. Endangering you and your families instead of upholding the law. Where's the Texas man to stop them and to stop the illegals? It's, it's within your power. Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, go read it. Build that militia, fellas, in your communities in Texas. I keep hearing about these, th these people with lots of land on the border, and these illegals are being trafficked in across their, their property. Trespassing. In the middle of the night. And people are wondering, well, should they take the law in their own hands? Listen, the law is in your hands. I heard this the other day. Some guy going, well, is this guy taking the law in his own hands? Is he taking it? The law is in your hands. You are the law. You're the law. If you're not the law in enforcing it, nobody is. Nobody is. And by the way, you enforce that law under the directives, the command statutes and judgments of God. You don't figure up your own crimes. You don't figure up your own judgments or statutes. You don't do that. You go to the law of God. That's how the states were governing themselves. Let me give you a couple of biblical examples. Um, I didn't give this one in, and I don't know why, because this is like one of my favorites. This is the first one that I see right out of the scriptures. And that's the father of the faith, Abraham himself. Genesis chapter 14. Read, listen to what it says. If you think Abraham is like the effeminate Jesus that they portray to you in images, and, all, and by the way, I think all those images they do of quote-unquote Jesus, artist renditions of Jesus, I think all of them are idolatrous. Because they bring Jesus down in his humility. He's not, he's not in his humility anymore. He's glorified. That's the first thing. And the second thing is they don't know what he looks like, and they don't know any of these things, and they forget the command, don't make carved images. And I understand carved images is different than maybe a painting or something, but nevertheless, you're carving out on canvas with paint an image. You don't make an image of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You don't bow yourself down to them. You don't serve them. You don't, you don't need pictures of uh, artist renditions of Jesus in your house. You don't need that. What in the world? We are not to be idolaters. And God gave us a word book, not a picture book. He wanted us to understand that those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, not with images. Rome is known for its images. Oh my goodness. And how that's infiltrated the Protestant church. <sighs> Ridiculous. But here it is, Genesis chapter 14, verse 12. 
And they took Lot, Abram's brother. This is when the kings were, you know, they go out. It's, it's a weird thing. There's a certain time of year all the kings just get together and say, hey, let's go butt heads here. We're going we're gonna to fight each other. And they took Lot, Abram's brother, brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants. By the way, listen to me very carefully. Those of you who are all in this Israel first stuff and all this stuff, and you think modern day Israel is this, that, and the other because they come from the loins of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, blah, blah. These trained servants didn't come from Abram's loins, yet they received the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham with circumcision. Just want to make that point. Same thing happened with Joseph when he went down to Egypt. He brought his servants with him. They had received the sign of the covenant too, but they didn't come from any of their loins. They would have been considered part of Israel, if you, if you will, because they received that sign of the covenant. He, armed with his trained servants, born in his own house, 318 pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him, it should say, after his return from the slaughter of Chedorloma, and the kings that were with him, and the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, many theologians have, have you know, theorized that Melchizedek is actually an incarnation of Christ, that he was king of Salem or Jerusalem. He was also a priest as well. And Melchizedek comes, and he brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies in thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Now stop and think about that a second. Was Abram condemned because he had a well-trained, well-armed, 318 militia men the army there in his house, and they went and fought against kings to get his his nephew back? Was he condemned for that? Nope, he wasn't. Nowhere in all of Scripture do you see a condemnation for Abraham's actions. Why? Because they were actions of love. How can you say that, Tim? This was, they, they brought war to these. No, the guys brought war to themselves by taking his nephew. The guys brought war to themselves by taking his nephew. You're living your life. Somebody takes one of you, they kidnap one of your kids. Are you the one responsible for going after them? Or are they responsible that you went after them? Yeah. Do you get it? Gentlemen. You're not responsible for the corrupt and their corruption. You're not responsible for that. But we are responsible for letting it go on. We're responsible for letting it go on when we know we have to deal with it. 
There are other places that we see. Why the need for the militia? 1 Samuel chapter 15. A couple of verses here God tells us in the first nine verses um, what Amalek did to the people of Israel. This is 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is what we read. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. When the people were leaving Egypt, Amalek was waiting to ambush them. They were going to come up from behind. They were going to attack the weak and the elderly and all of these people. They were cowards. Amalek were cowards. And they came up and attacked the people. And he says, Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Talim, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Hevala until thou comest to Shur, that is, over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lamb and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuge that they destroyed utterly. So, Saul was given a command. He takes the men who have been assigned, and he goes and does what he does with them. Except he's not fully obedient. They don't kill the king. They saved the best of all of the, of the flocks and of the cattle so that they didn't do, they didn't obey the Lord. They're like Achan. Remember Achan? We talked about him the other week. He saw the accursed thing, he took it, and he brought a curse on himself, and he brought it on his family. And yet here, Saul brings a curse on himself. And later we see that the kingdom was taken from him. It was taken. Why was this such a big deal? Well, if we go back into Deuteronomy chapter 25, here's what we read. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when ye were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of it. This was, this was Saul's opportunity to fulfill the command of God right here in Deuteronomy chapter 25. You're to blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it. Saul forgot it. Saul forgot it. Hmm. 
John Calvin and Matthew Henry tell us uh, the feeble and the infirm of the Exodus procession. As the civil magistrate, Moses and the elders of the Republic of Israel were obligated to defend their people with the sword. Do you understand that? I know people don't like to talk about the sword because we're taught to be gentle and meek and, and, and we should be all those things. Don't get me wrong. But it's, it's sort of this emasculation that takes place. One writer, John Robinson from the Trinity Foundation, has, has called it the effeminization of the church. We don't need any more effeminization. We got too much of that going on anyway. We need bold men. Men with man parts, okay? I'll say it that way. Men with man parts. That are not afraid to stand for what is true and right and good. And are not swayed by the temptations of men, of bribes, and the like. You know, it's interesting. Romans 13 often comes up here. By the way, Romans 13 comes right in the midst of all this talk about the church, by the way. (laughs) It was the church. The colonies had it right in the early states. They had it exactly right. You only have Christians served. Now, granted, even among Christians, you're going to have issues that you're going to have to deal with. That's part of dealing with fallen man. It's just as part of dealing with it. But these were men who were known in their communities by their character. And when they took the oath of office, they also affirmed who was the authority and where that authority came from the Scriptures, and Jesus, the Savior of the world. That's what they would affirm. It was a very simple religious test oath, if you will. Sadly, the federal constitution got rid of that. Not going to have a religious test oath for anybody serving. Well, you just open up the door, don't you? And most people probably didn't think a thing about it. But years later, it's starting to show up, isn't it? got Muslims in there, you got atheists in there. You got all kinds of people with warped, twisted, unbiblical, unchristian views, and some of them antichrist views. We're told in Romans this, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers for there is no power but of God. Jesus said so himself even to Pilate, didn't he? You have no authority except my Father give it to you. The powers that be are ordained of God, wheresoever or whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. If you're resisting power given by God that's being used lawfully, and I'm talking about lawfully the way Paul defines it out to Timothy, you know, if you're a a thief, if you're a... Um, an adulterer, if you're a sodomite, if you're um, a blasphemer, whatever you are, if you're engaged in that behavior, which is law-breaking, lawlessness, then the law applies to you. Then he says this, For rulers are not a terror to do good work, to do good works, but to the evil. 
Wilt thou not then be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God. At least that's what he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be upholding God's laws, not his own. He's not supposed to be doing what's right in his own eyes. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Let me let, me let you in on something. Who are supposed to be the rulers, if you will, in the United States? Who's supposed to be the rulers? Look at your Constitution, U.S. Constitution. I'll give you three chances to answer it. The first two don't count, but it's the first three words of the U.S. Constitution. We, the people. Not King George, not President Bush, not Ambassador so-and-so, or Representative so-and-so, or Senator so-and-so. We, the people, are the rulers. We're supposed to be that under King Jesus. You kind of get a little warm and fuzzy when you start thinking about the fact that the Bible says that we, the saints, will rule and reign with him on his throne. Anybody have a light bulb moment? Come on. That's what we're supposed to be. How did we lose it? We forgot. And I talked about that last week, too. A land of forgetfulness. Of people dead still in their sins when they think they've been washed from them. They claim they're Christian, but they're not. They've never been born again. We're to be the enforcers of the laws that we have. God's told us time and time again in the Old Testament what He requires of us. I've got a few other things I'm going to share here. We're running out of time. We've got about 30 seconds here. So if you guys want to pick up with me on sonsoflibertymedia.com, before it's news.com or on Rumble at Sons of Liberty Radio Live. I'm going to carry over just a few minutes. It won't be long. Uh, I've just got a couple of more passages I want to read. And then I want to read you this little piece by David Kopel. Um, he's writing on the ancient Hebrew militia. And I think you need to hear that. I think you also need, if you've never heard how God separates out those who will serve in that militia, I think that's pretty important too. Because again, we're talking about a free society. We're not talking about a heavy-handed Soviet-style you know, draft, uh, pull people out and make them serve the state. Uh, we're talking about those who serve voluntarily because they love liberty and because they love the Lord and they love their neighbors. All right, so hang with us. Come over to sonsoflibertymedia.com, rumble, or beforeitsnews.com, and we'll finish up over there. Bradley, be with you at 3, and then Lord willing, we're going to see you back here in the morning, 6 a.m., bright and early. 50th anniversary of a book that blew away Big Pharma. Don't miss it. All right, want to welcome everybody coming over from Red State Talk Radio. Here is a little piece from a portion of a piece that David Kopel, now he writes on a lot of uh, uh, gun and Second Amendment issues, okay? And he's writing on this ancient Hebrew militia. And we'll look at some of that in just a minute. Here's what he says. Israel's military system was, quote, based on the duty of every able-bodied male to bear arms and serve. Israel relied on a militia in which citizen soldiers would spend most of their time cultivating their farms. Hmm. Or engaged in other economic production. You know, they didn't just they didn't just run around, you know, being soldier all the time. They had time for training, but they they conducted their business. They 
worked their land. They engaged in economic enterprise. And they would fight only for limited periods, ideally after harvest, and only when necessary. So sometimes you're going to finish the harvest and you're not going to be fighting. <laughs> Similarly, during the American Revolution, most men served in their state militias. By the way, you guys may remember we had Pastor John Weaver on from uh, Georgia. And Pastor John, I, I highly encourage people to listen to some of his sermons. I mean, you want to talk about a very unique man. Uh, some of the sermons he gives, you'll learn quite a bit and you'll unlearn a lot of your indoctrination listening to some of his sermons. You really will, especially about the War of Northern Aggression stuff. But John uh, communicated to me that his birth certificate out of Georgia has on it his militia district. It would be the militia he would serve in as he would grow up in the state of Georgia. Thought that was pretty cool, man. Mine doesn't have that, but I thought it was pretty cool. So, during the American Revolution, most men served in their state militias uh, rather than the Continental Army. Thus, they were most able to keep their farms in production and other economic activity in progress. Again, this is from David Copel. This was an important reason why the United States was able to economically sustain a war that lasted eight years, Another purpose of the Hebrew militia system was the decentralization of power. Right there. There's your answer. Decentralization of power for the preservation of liberty. And there's a guy by the name of Etz Hayim, and he explains, Deuteronomy does not intend that the Israelites maintain a standing army. And by the way, neither does our Constitution. It allows for a standing army for two years. This is why uh, the other day when Johnson and company in the Congress passed the NDAA with its unlawful uh, spying on Americans like you and me, that's what that is. That's that re-up of, the, uh, of the con what the Constitution... They're, they're meeting the demands of the Constitution, but then they're utilizing it for their own ends. Instead, they are to have a civilian army or militia mobilized at times of need and commanded by officers appointed for the occasion. Reliance on a militia rather than a standing army for military need is another example of Deuteronomy's dispersal of power among different officials. And keep in mind, they numbered the people and divided them into militia districts. This was something we talked about with Brent Winters when he was on when we were talking about the militia. They, they organized the different tribes into different districts for militia. Again, this is why I'd point back to Pastor John Weaver and his birth certificate. I thought that was kind of cool. Sounds very biblical to me. And even though they would count many men, the numbers didn't necessarily mean victory, nor did it mean the favor of God. For instance, 2 Samuel chapter 25, 24, excuse me. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people. Did God tell him to do that? Nope. 
And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people how many soever they be, an hundredfold, and that the eyes of my lord the king may see it. But why doth my lord the king delight in this thing? Why? why? Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And they passed over Jordan and pitched in Eror on the right side of the city that lieth in the midst of the river of Gad and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead in the land of Tatimhodoshi. <laughs> and they came to Danjan and about to Zidon and came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the south of Judah, even to Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. That's how long it took them to count these guys. And Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people under the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And notice this. And David's heart smote him after he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. Here's the encouraging part, fellas. You say, Tim, I, look, I've got a friend. I think he's in Massachusetts. And he says, Tim, I talk to people all the time. I talk to the men, and they just don't get it. They don't want to be a part of it. That's okay. Keep plugging along, brother. Tim, we only got a few guys. We got five or ten guys here. That's okay. Keep plugging along. What have we not learned, men? Have we not learned that God does not use the majority? He doesn't. He never does. In fact, he starts whittling people out with Gideon. Isn't that what he does? <laughs> Whittles them down to 300 guys. They got thousands. And when he sets out and he sets up the militia, he starts talking about, okay, you need to get rid of this guy. He's planted a vineyard. He needs to go eat of the vineyard. You got this guy. He needs to marry this chick because if he dies, then another, another guy is going to take her for his wife. You got a guy who's built the house. He hasn't lived in it. You got all these things where, where the man's mind are on these things. Let those guys go. You got a guy who's a coward. Let him go. God only wanted people whose mind was on the fight. That's all he wanted. They could be singularly focused on doing their deed of what they needed to do. That's what he wanted to do. We have the story of Gideon. This will be the last one that I end with. And, there, and look, there's, there's plenty of these that you can go along and you can find within the Scripture too. And you can find it in history. But here's what we find out in Judges chapter 7. Whoops, wrong thing there. Give you a little snow in the midst of it. Judges chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Here's what we read. Then Jerubbabel, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him, rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. What? Come again? The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. 
You, you got too many soldiers there, Gideon, for me to get the glory. Your guys are going to take my glory, and I'm not going to have any of that. And that's what he says. Lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Sounds like a lot of Americans today, too, doesn't it? We got the bigger and the best of this, that, and the other. You're trusting in princes and chariots. That's what you're trusting in. Oh, we're going to build a big wall. It's going to keep out the invaders. Trusting in them walls, are you? Hmm. The Bible says, we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. You obey the Lord, all that other stuff takes care of itself. It really does. Now therefore go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. If you're, if you're, if you're cowardly, then go home. And there returned to the people twenty and two thousand. <laughs> wow. That's a big chunk of people, isn't it? 22,000. Went home. They were fearful and afraid. And there remained 10,000. So two-thirds of the people, more than two-thirds, left because they were fearful and afraid. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Bring them down to the water. I'll try them for thee there. And it shall be that of, the, of whom I say unto thee, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people under the water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue, as a dog lappeth, in other words, he just sticks his face down in the water, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink, and so you, you've got this picture. If you're the guy who's just, he's thirsty and he just doesn't care, dunks his head in there, you know, like he's bobbing for apples, sucking up water. And then you've got the other guy who bends down and he's kind of got his water, he's bringing it up and he's kind of keeping an out, he's kind of keeping his eyes alert for what's around him. That's what's going on. That's how he's separating them out. So we see. And the number of them that lapped putting their hand to their mouth, were 300 men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink the water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the 300 men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand, and let all the other people go, every man into his place. And what happened? Well, God gave him the victory, didn't he? He gave him the victory. The people took victuals in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man upon his tent, and retained those 300 men. And the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Arise, get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. But if thou fear to go down, go through the Fura, thy servant, down to the host, and thou shalt hear what they say, and afterward shalt thine hands be strengthened to go down unto the host, then went he down with Fura, his servant, unto the outside of the armed men that were in the host. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. And their camels were without number as the sand of the sea for the multitude. So you got Midianites, you got Amalekites, you got all these people. It's just 
a ton of people. You got 300 guys that God's going to use to, to whoop them. And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow and said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian and came into a tent and smote it that it fell and overturned it that the tent lay along. And his fellow answered and said, This is nothing else save the sword of Gideon and the son, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. For into his hand the Lord hath delivered Midian and all the host. And it was so. When Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof, that he worshipped, and he returned into the host of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies, and he put a trumpet in every man's hand and with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. And you go on to read it, and what did the Lord do? When they smashed those pitchers and the torches were lit up and they shouted the sword of the Lord in Gideon, it drove the Midians into a frenzy to which they started killing each other. And then what happened? Then the people of Israel were emboldened to go chase them down and kill them. Mm-hmm. Is this the Lord you serve? Or is he saying, no, no, you, you don't need to worry about that stuff. You don't need to worry about weapons. You don't need to worry about engaging in battle. And I'm not talking about the spiritual battle. Look, I've said it before. Our offensive weapons, offensive weapons are not carnal. They're not guns. They're not swords. They're not knives. They're not tanks. They're not bazookas. They're this. They're words that we speak. They're deeds that we do that are in alignment with the gospel of Jesus Christ in hopes that God will save among those people His elect, even as Paul said. And if we have to endure some suffering in the midst, we endure it for the sake of the elect, as Paul said. That many might be saved. But, but make no mistake here. Dealing with enemies in this manner is not wrong. It is not sin. I don't care who tells you it is or whatever they say. God bless these men in each of these scenarios that I gave you, from Abraham to Gideon. And I could throw in uh, the armies of Israel that came up in Judges 19 and 20 to deal with those Sodomites. Those were militia guys too. They came up to deal with them. Those ones who abused the concubine until it killed her. They got the message and they returned and they were there to bring justice. This is what it's going to take, fellas. I want it as bloodless as possible. I really do. I think David Zuniga wants that at Tactical Civics. In fact, he's got a book called, uh, I want to say it was called Bloodless Liberty or something. I forget what it is. Blood, it's, bloodless is in the title. The desire is that we can do it peacefully. But I'm under no illusions that throughout history, when you're dealing with tyrants, usually it doesn't end too peacefully. But as much as with, as possible with us, the Bible says, we should try to live at peace with all men. So we want to try to do that. But I'm under no illusions that it's going to necessarily end like that. And so this is why, men, listen, I'm one of you. This isn't a finger-pointing thing. This is us. This is us as men. We have got to build these militias in our communities. We've got to build them. 
start with men in your church. Start with your sons. Start with your son-in-laws, your uncles, your cousins, whoever you can get, your neighbors, whoever you can get to just come at least meet once a week. Encourage one another. Don't just sit and talk about the problems. Start talking about the solutions. Start talking and planning of what you're going to do to help you work together as, for lack of a better term, a body. Start looking at those solutions. You are the solution to this. You are. The politicians are not the solution. You are. And I am. And if we'll keep our eye on our King, who leads us into victory in our battles, is what the Scripture teaches us, we'll be just fine. But this is for free men, men who are bold, men who are ready to be used to right the wrongs that we see in our society, men who love their families, their communities, and their neighbors, and most of all, men who love the living and true God. May God grant it. May God send us men, and may He send us militias to be useful in the service and the advancement of His kingdom. You say, how can that be? How can that be an advancement of His kingdom? as a means of protection, as a means of justice. If you don't see that, I don't know how to help you see it. I mean, I just, I really don't know how to help you see it. It seems so obvious, so clear to me. And I'm the last guy who wants to get, I don't even want to get in a fist fight with people. I I avoided those like the plague. I've, I've been in just a couple of fights in my entire life. And I always tried to avoid fights as much as I could. Because I didn't want to be looking over my back. But there's... We can't afford... We can't avoid this. We can't avoid what's right in their face. We're going to have to deal with it sooner and later, and it's better to deal with it sooner than later. Bradley, be with you at 3. Lord willing, we'll be back with you in the morning. 6 a.m. We're going to talk about a book. 50 years it's been out. And just probably recently... Maybe within the past five or ten years, this book has become, you know, like David Stone at Goliath. It's become that uh, in dealing with the lies of Big Pharma surrounding a particular C word. So, uh, Lord willing, we're going to have that interview for you in the morning. If not, you'll have me again doing whatever the Lord lays on my heart because I really do believe Uh, that when I ask the Lord for a word for his people, I believe he gives that to his people, what they need to hear. And uh, we give him the glory for that. So we'll see you here back in the morning, 6 a.m., Lord willing. Talk to you then.